Welcome everyone. We are continuing our study of Simha. We are in class number 65. Specifically, we've been studying the subject of De'aga, of worry. And we have been studying the words of Shilomo HaMelech, who attacks this subject pretty head-on, direct. As we learned in the last class, De'aga belev ish yashhena. That a person who has worry needs to lower that worry. And then we spoke about the Gemara in Sanhedrin, who basically helps us understand what Shilomo Melech means, or better yet, what's the system? How do you do that? It's very easy to say, don't worry. Probably every person that you know has some sort of line that they heard about how silly it is to worry, how meaningless it is to worry, how it doesn't get you anywhere, what's the point, whatever happened, happened, you don't control the future, live the moment. We could sit here and probably repeat hundreds of lines that everybody can say, but it doesn't really help at the end of the day because it's not coming necessarily from a logical place. And therefore there needs to be real time advice and how to get there. And that's why we have the words of Shlomo HaMelech, who not only tells us where we need to get, but also with the help of Hazal, they tell us how to get there. And the Gemaran Sanhedrin, last week, we gave one way to understand this Pasuk. Today we're going to learn another way the Gemara presents. The Gemara says, Yashhena, again, the word Yashhena means to lower it. It's an interesting way of saying lower it. It could have said Yashpilena, Yoridena. But Yashhena, says the Gemara, is coming to allude or to hint to the way you could do that. <coughs> so the word Yashhena, if you take the Sheen, and make it to a sin, just take the dot from the right of the sheen and put it on the left. Now you have a sin. So it says the Gemara, Yesihena la'aherim. To get rid of your de'aga, so talk about it to others. So today we're going to discuss what that means and how that helps. So first of all, I'd like to share with you from a book called Be'er Ma'im Ha'im, who makes some pretty amazing statements. And he starts by saying that there is a rule that if a person talks about his worry or her worry, if they bring it from their heart, to their mouth, yekel min halev. 
somehow that makes the worry a little bit lighter on the heart. Masha'enken, he says, but it's not going to be that way. If you leave your worry where it is in your mind, we say the heart, but it means your mind. As he says, Tsarato, Tsara Sheyachiv Levavo Meod. If you leave it where it started, which is in your mind, that's where it developed. If you leave it there, it's going to be very heavy to carry. But if you let it out of your mouth, it's going to lighten it, lighten the load. How does that work? So basically, the way it works, as he explains, is that when something is in the area where it was created, it has the most strength. When you move it away from the area that it was created, it gets a little bit lighter and loses its strength. Not only, by the way, when you move it to other people, but even within the person himself, it's possible that it gets lighter. How so? So for example, if a person has, has something inside of them and they let it out, sometimes a person is very angry. Inside, they're very angry. And they literally want to kill somebody. And then they let out this anger and they talk something that we don't recommend that we should be doing. But they do it. After that strong reaction with words like, I'm going to kill you, like all types of things that you've probably heard, hopefully, that you didn't say. Somehow after you finish talking, you don't want to kill them as much. What happened? What happens? you took something that was born in your heart, this anger, this pain, this hurt, and you moved it from your mind into your mouth. Again, I'm not recommending you should do that. But if it's the difference of killing somebody or saying some words, better, better you say something. It lightened the load. Because what happened? You moved it from its birthplace to somewhere further away. It lost the home court advantage and the strength gets weak. Another example, it works even if a person has some sort of worry that's subconscious. It's born not in his conscience. It's somewhere hidden. They don't even know why they're bothered. Something is upsetting them. And then they move it from the subconscious into their conscience and they actually think about it. They talk to somebody about it and they, they realize what's bothering them and then they start thinking about what's bothering them. Again, that has the ability to lighten the load. Because again, you moved it from the birthplace to another place. So not necessarily you have to go to other people 
to let out something and weaken it. Another example, actually, it's a halacha brought down in the Ramah, in Shulchan Aruch, in Luchot Shabbat. The Ramah says that while we know Shabbat is supposed to be oneg, supposed to be a joyous day, and we're supposed to be doing things of pleasure, like eating and sleeping, oneg Shabbat, he says, what about crying? Can a person cry on Shabbat? Of course not. Can't cry on Shabbat, that's not oneg. But says the Ramah, What if a person has pleasure by crying? Wow, what kind of pleasure is that? Who cries for pleasure? He doesn't mean happiness by crying. He says, So that the pain goes away from his heart. Mutar livkot beShabbat. For that kind of crying, it's an oneg. Amazing. W- what'd you do? You had a problem. It's bothering you, so you cried. How did that make you feel better? How did that give you relief? The oneg here is the relief. Sometimes relief is oneg, is pleasure. When a person's in pain and they have relief, it feels like pleasure to them. What happened? It, you didn't talk to anybody. You didn't get advice. Nobody cried with you? Nobody helped you? Answer is, when you move something from the place it was created, it gets weaker. So you cried. I don't know that you got all of it out, but you weakened it. That's the way discussing with others works as well. means Even if they don't really help you, or they don't really advise you, but the fact that you spoke about it, that in itself makes it weaker. If you keep it inside and you don't want to share it and you want to hold it in and you're too proud, perhaps, to talk about something that you're worried about, which unfortunately sometimes people like to keep insulated. It's very important to be a private person. But sometimes you need to talk things out. If you don't do that in the right time, so you're going to end up having a, a tremendous load on your mind that's very hard to get rid of. The Be'er Ma'im Hayim, the book I quoted earlier, brings some amazing examples. One of them is a beautiful example. I'm going to share it with you. The other one, I would be scared to write it. But he wrote it, so I'm blaming it on him. I would not have written this example. But he writes it, and I believe the fact that he even wrote it shows how important and relevant this is. He gives two examples in the Torah for this principle that he just shared with us. We just gave some live examples, but he brings Torah examples where the Torah speaks about this exact phenomenon. He says... In Parashat Kitisa, we know that after the terrible sin of the Egel, when Am Yisrael made the golden calf, so Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, the Pasuk says, Ra'iti et ha'am hazeh, is I saw this nation, ve'hine am keshe'orev hu, 
They're very stubborn. They're stiff-necked. Very hard to deal with them. Ve'ata, Hashem tells Moshe, and now, Hanihali, please leave me. He's pleading with Moshe. Just imagine that. Ve'yihar api bahem, let my anger come out on them. Let, let it burn on them. Ve'achalem, and I will destroy them. I'm going to make you a great nation. Moshe, you'll be the next Yaakov Avinu. It won't be Bene Yaakov, Bene Yisrael. It will now be Bene Moshe. That was the opportunity that Hashem gave Moshe Rabbeinu. I'm done with these people. I'm going to start with you. Just like Hashem didn't start with Noah. He didn't start with Abraham. He didn't start with Yitzhak. He started with Yaakov. We called Bene Yaakov, B'nai Yisrael, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, we're going to start from you. And as you know the story, Moshe Rabbeinu did not take that opportunity. He didn't see it as an opportunity. Like a great leader, he fought for his people. That Perhaps that's why Hashem told him. And he pleaded on their behalf. What does the Pasuk say at the end of Moshe's talk? It says... Vainahem Adonai Hashem reconsidered. He said, You know what? I hear you. Change his mind. Vainahem Al Hara'a about the bed. Asher Diber that he spoke. La Asot Le Amo. The words that he spoke to Moshe that he's going to destroy them. Hashem says, forget it. I take it back. I'm not going to do it. Says the Be'er Ha'im, Ma'im Ha'im. What does it mean, Asher Diber La'asot Le'amo? That he spoke that he's going to do. It should have said, Be'inachem Hashem Al Hara'a Asher Hashab. Or that he planned, or that he thought. What does it mean that he spoke? The speaking wasn't the issue. It was the fact that he was going to do it. Says the Be'er Ma'im Ha'im that Hashem teaches us, He acts in the Torah, He teaches us as an example for ourselves. And He says, look how Hashem was able to kavyachol, calm down. It's hard to say that about Hashem, but He's saying Hashem is representing for us when we have a problem, if someone would make the egel in our life, then we want to destroy them. They destroyed us, we're destroying them. So how was he able to get to, I want to destroy them, to, okay, I can live with it. Asher diber. The fact that he spoke and he said, I'm going to destroy them, that weakened the anger. And that's why Vayinachem Hashem al hara'a asher diber la'asot la'amo. Since he spoke about it, so Kav Yachol, now you understand why I can't say this? Kav Yachol, he got it out of his system. Again, Hashem doesn't need to get anything out of his system. But he's giving, he says, Hashem models for us what human beings need to make themselves successful. That's what it means, Asher Diber. He spoke about it, 
it made it a little easier to carry. And he gives another example. This, one's like, this one I can share with you more confidently. He brings the story of Yehuda. Everyone knows the Pasuk in the beginning of Parashat Vayigash. It says, Vayigash elav Yehuda. Yehuda, after Binyamin was taken from the brothers and put in jail in Mitzrayim, and they tried whatever they could and there was nothing to do. He was caught with the goblet of the king. And it says, Vayigash elav Yehuda. Yehuda, he approached Yosef. He didn't know it was Yosef. Vayomer, and he said, Bi Adoni. He says, please, my master, I'm pleading with you. Yedaberna avdecha davar. Let your servant, that's him, speak something beozne Adoni. Let me say something in your ears. Let me talk to you. Listen to these words. Simply it means, and don't get angry with me. Oh, because you're like Paro. I respect you like Paro. Please don't take this as a knock that I don't respect you. I respect you a lot. That's the simple meaning. Says the Be'er Mahim, no. He's what he was telling him. Hazal say, He threatened him. He told him, I'm going to kill you with Paro. So what does it mean? So he says, let me talk to you. Because if I don't talk to you, your anger on us is going to burn within me. And then I'm going to have to kill you. Let me talk to you. Let me talk it out with you. Let me share with you my frustration. Because if I don't let it out, I'm afraid your anger with us is going to burn in me and then I don't know what I'm going to do. That's the way the Be'er Ma'im Ha'im learns that pasuk. It's a beautiful explanation actually. And again, a proof that when things get moved from their birthplace, they get weaker. That's what Yesihena Le'aherim does. Meaning, it doesn't matter who you're even talking to. The very fact that you spoke and you moved it, that already has a benefit. But, clearly, who you speak to is going to make a big difference. Because there's even a greater benefit than just letting it out. Because if you speak to the right person, if you have such a person in your life, that when you speak to them, we'll call them a friend, when you speak to them, they hear you, first of all. They, they, they hear not just with their ears, but they hear with their heart. If you have such a friend that hears you, and if you have such a friend that actually is bothered, is in pain for you, so that could have tremendous benefit. Even more than just letting it out. For two reasons. Reason number one is that we've mentioned this before and I don't want to go into it too much today. But if a person 
is in pain for somebody else. And that person doesn't deserve to be in pain. So then Hashem will help the person in pain just to relieve the one who's not supposed to be in pain. Meaning, if a person is suffering from something, and I don't know about it, so my pain isn't relevant to that person's suffering. But once I know about it, and if again, it doesn't bother me, again, I'm not relevant. But what if I know about it, and it bothers me? Now I'm suffering. Maybe I don't deserve to suffer. If I'm suffering because of their pain, that in itself is a reason to alleviate the other person's pain. Just to take away my suffering that's not deserving. So that's one reason. But again, the friend that you're talking to has to actually care. Because if they don't care, they just give you some lip service of how they care, but they don't really care. So then that benefit is out the window. You'll have only the first benefit. And there's another benefit. The other benefit is sharing the burden. What does it mean to share the burden? Means that the way the human body works is just like if you're carrying a heavy box and it's unbearable because it's so heavy and you can't do it anymore and someone comes and puts their shoulder next to yours and helps you carry the box, it gets lighter on your shoulder. So too, when someone shares your pain or shares your problem, they don't advise you, they don't help you, they just share the pain by identifying with that pain by crying with you, that in itself makes your weight lighter. But again, you have to have a friend who actually cares so that the burden can become lower. Of course, sharing with a friend could also make you smarter. Like Hazal say, the Pasuk says, Barzel be barzel yahad. Putting two pieces of iron together. Says the Gemara, what does that mean? Says the when you put two iron pieces together, one against the other, they sharpen the other one. So too, two people, says the Gemara Ta'anit, two wise people that are going at it and discussing something of value, Torah, Musa, whatever it is, they get sharper because they're sharpening each other. Which means by myself, I'm capable of understanding this much. But with another person that I'm talking to and we're sharing and we're fighting and we're arguing, then I am capable of much more. So besides their pain, besides sharing the burden, they may actually help you get smarter. Not necessarily, by the way, that they're going to give you the right answer. It could be they'll just help you get the right answer. Because you always had the right answer, but you didn't know how to get to it. But with two people talking it out and arguing and fighting and disagreeing, and all of a sudden, you get clarity. You understand. 
They may give you good advice that you didn't know about. So that's the benefit. Yesihenna la'aharim has multiple levels of benefit. As we just mentioned. It's interesting that the Gemara says yesihenna la'aharim in plural. Why does it say aharim and not yesihenna la'ahir? Why in plural? One possible answer, very useful to know, especially for people in pain, is that people could only take so much of your pain. Try not to put all your pain on one person because it may be unbearable. Ahirim means split it up. Don't put everything in one person because it may be unbearable for them and then you'll lose that person for the future. Every one of us could hold a little bit. But you put everything on one person, it's too much. So la'aharim. Don't put too much pain on others. Like it says in Havot Levavot. The great Havot Levavot says that the great person da'agato belibo. He leaves his worry in his heart. Vetsahalato al panav. And his joy is what he shows you on his face. Meaning, the great person is aware that you don't want to put people that see you in pain too much. Sometimes not at all. Depends who you're dealing with. But you got to be aware. Even when you have to, there might be a limit. So therefore, Ahirim is telling you, be careful not to burn out the people around you by giving them too much on their head. With that introduction, it becomes quite important to share with you the following thought. This statement that's made Masechet Megillah Hazal quote in other places as well they tell us that Hashem has a certain unique way of dealing with people in this world of course he has many ways and that's the Torah's job to teach us how he does it one of the ways, says the Gemara, is that Hashem is makdim refu'ah lemaka. Which means that when Hashem sends a maka, a maka means a problem. It could be of any kind of problem. It could be a financial issue, it could be a health issue, it could be a spiritual issue, it could be a family issue, it could be a social issue any issue that a person might have that's called a makkah makkah is a challenge or a problem that before Hashem sends the makkah to a person he first creates 
the refuah. He creates the remedy or the solution. Every problem has a solution. Every challenge has an answer. But the way Hashem does it is, He creates first the solution, and then He creates the problem. And one of the examples Hazal give, probably if we look in the Torah, we'll find many, but one of the examples the Gemara Megillah gives, is from Megillat Esther. In Megillat Esther, the first two perakim, the first two chapters, describe basically Ahashverosh, his rise to power. It describes how he killed his wife Vashti. It describes how Mordechai lived in, he actually moved to Shushan Habira to take care of his cousin Esther, because she had no parents. It talks about how Esther was in the running for the next queen. And it talks about her being crowned. And finally, at the end of the second chapter, there is a short story of Biktan Vateresh, these two men that were trying to poison the king, who at that time was the most powerful man in the world. And they were trying to poison him. You know, the security of the king is a very big deal. A lot of enemies that leaders have. And therefore, they need extra security. And Biktan Vateresh were from the inside, yet they were trying to poison the king. And Mordechai found out, and he told Esther. And the rest is history, as you know. And then starts the third chapter. The third chapter talks about the rise of Haman, after the first two chapters, starts the rise of Haman and the decree of Haman on Am Yisrael. That's the way, first two and then the third. The Gemara wonders, what does it mean? What does that mean? And after those things that we just reported, then Ahashverosh took Haman and raised his power. Usually when you tell a story and you talk in chronological order, you don't have to stop and say, oh, and after this, and after that happened, it's assumed when you're telling a story that the next thing happened after the first one. What does the Megillah have to say? And after all of these things, oh, it says the Gemara, you know, because Hashem doesn't bring the Makkah, the Makkah is Haman. The Makkah is his decree. But Hashem, before he brings the Makkah, he already prepares the Refuah. What's the Refuah? The Refuah is that Esther becomes a queen. That's the Refuah of Am Yisrael. The Refuah is that Mordechai needs to be in Shushan. So Hashem already prepared the Yeshua of Mordechai to bring him to Shushan. In fact, he had to bring Ahashverosh to Shushan also. Because Ahashverosh wanted a special chair, the one like Shlomo Amelech. And he only found people in Shushan that can make it. And it was too big to transport. So he actually had to move from the 
capital, Babel, which was the capital of the time, to a small city, Shushan. Hashem is preparing the Yeshua. And then, Biktan Vateresh. How Hashem made Mordechai be in the right spot. And now he saved the king's life. This favor that he saved the king's life was a very big deal. I mean, it's disappointing when you read the story that all they did after he saved the king's life is write it in the memoirs of the king. That's what you do for a man who saved your life. I mean, you didn't give him a very high title in your government. You, you didn't give him a lot of money. You didn't give him a lot of power. You wrote it in the, in the like it's a, a memory that just took place. He saved your life. Very disappointing. That's all they did. But guess what? This was the eventual refuah. When Haman was all excited about killing Mordechai, he came in that night and the king couldn't sleep and they're reading the memoirs. And that turned the whole story of Purim. That was the refuah. So, Ahar HaDevarim says the Gemara, this is the way Hashem works. Before he sends the Makkah, he first creates the refuah. He creates the salvation before the problem. This is one of many examples, not only for Am Yisrael, but for each individual person. That's the way Hashem runs the world. That means if a person has a makkah, he should know the refuah was already created. Now, seemingly there's a question on this principle. If a person has a makkah, and someone gives them the refuah, someone lo'alenu, has a major medical issue. And someone comes with the right pill and says, take this and it's going to heal you. He takes it, heals them. Do you think it matters to that person if the tablet was made before they were sick or after they were sick? What does it matter? As long as they have it, when they need it, that's all that matters. Why do I care if Hashem makes the refuah before the makkah? It's not like I'm getting the refuah before the makkah anyway. I'm only going to get the refuah after the makkah. For example, in Purim, what would be a difference if the whole story of the first two chapters happened after Haman and his gezerah? What would it matter? Why? Does Hashem do that? Seemingly, there's no difference to the person who's getting the refuah when his refuah was created. So why is it something that Hashem does and the Gemara is telling us about it and the Megillah is highlighting it? What does it matter? The Malbim gives a well-known answer to this question. The Malbim says beautifully 
that if Hashem would send the Makkah before He would create the Refuah, so it would, it would seem like the goal was to send the guy a Makkah, to send him a problem. That's the goal. Oh, now that he figured it out, he got better, he, Hashem will send him the Refuah. That's a mistake. Hashem makes the Refuah first. To be, that we should be clear that when Hashem sends a Makkah, the goal isn't the Makkah. Because if it was, why is he making the Refuah before? The whole purpose of the Makkah is to make the person better. So Hashem is already working on the better before he even sends the Makkah. That's how the Malbim explains, which is a beautiful explanation. I feel that there's still something more about this. It always bothered me for many years because the person who has the Makkah doesn't know the Refu'ah was made before. So why do we need to know about this? So I'd like to offer another explanation from a different angle. I've already mentioned to you before from the Be'er Ma'im Hayim that Hashem models for us the way we should live our lives. When you learn something about how Hashem did or didn't do, that's supposed to be your role model. When Hashem creates a refuah before the Makkah, He's teaching us something about us. That we also must do the same in our lives. We also must prepare the refuah before the Makkah. Don't wait for the Makkah to prepare your refuah. By then it might be too late. I'm going to give you an example. Very simple example. You have a person who doesn't have much emunah. Now you and I both know whether we have full emunah or not. We know that emunah is that unbelievable color. It's tremendous strength that a person has if they have emunah. That no matter what's going on in their life, they have the strength and they have the happiness, the gamzu letova. All of what emunah does for a person, it makes a strong, healthy, happy person. And no matter what happens in your life, if you have emunah, betzadik beemunato yehir. You have emunah, you're going to live an unbelievable life. Doesn't mean your life is going to change necessarily. It means you will live a great life, despite what's going on. That's what emunah can do. It could turn someone who is suffering to someone who is doing great. In the same situation. So now. You have a person, doesn't have emunah, never learned emunah for whatever reason. And they get into a difficulty. They have a big makkah. Something very hard, very difficult is happening to, to themselves or someone in their family. It's a very hard makkah. Now, you, me, we have emunah. So now, we know the solution. If you have emunah with the makkah, so you're going to be, you can't say great, but you'll be much better. You won't fall apart. You might even be stronger and try to improve your life. 
Beautiful. So now you and I both know that because we went to many Emunah classes. We read books on Emunah. And uh, here we go. We're going to knock on the guy's door and say, listen, you know, I'm sorry about the situation that you're in. I feel bad. So I just want you, I want to sit down with you and tell you how you need to have Emunah. You know, whatever Hashem does is for the best. You know, Hashem never does anything without Hashbon, and it's good for you. The suffering is good for you. I'm telling you, it's good for you. Here, it says it right here in Habot Lavot. And by the way, you deserve it. Don't, don't, don't think, don't think this was like some random thing that just happened, appeared on your doorstep. You deserve it. And it's good for you. Just know that. Hashem does only good. Now, I think by, by now, you didn't start your second shiur yet. And the person wants to regularly kill you. Okay? Now, what, what's wrong? What, what, what's happening here? Isn't emunah the refuah to the makkah? Of course it is. But only when it comes before the Makkah. If you're going to wait for Makot to develop your Emunah, it becomes very difficult. I don't say impossible, but very difficult. To see how Hashem is so good. First time to think about how He's good in your predicament. That's hard, really. If He's so good, so why is this happening to me? Now you started thinking about why He's good. To develop Emunah in that situation... It's very hard and probably a big mistake on your part to go and try to give them shiurim and emunah at this point in their life. Right now, they may need a little more empathy. They need maybe someone to cry with them. Maybe they'll get, you'll get a chance somewhere between the cracks to throw something in. Maybe you'll give them a book. Maybe you, you say, listen to this class. But to go directly with emunah, you can't do that. Too late. Now, a normal person who has relatively not too many issues, nobody has no issues, but relatively is living a normal life. That person, you can get up there and say, listen, emunah, Hashem does only good. And if something is not going so well, then you deserve it. It's good for you. Here's what he wants from you. You could talk about that. No problem. Because the makkah isn't there yet. Makdim emunah refuah lemakah. You're makdim the solution in your life before the makot come. We all know that life is full of makot. Small makot, big makot. That's not going to change. It doesn't matter who you are. It has nothing to do with your financial status or your looks or your family. It has nothing to do with how smart you are or educated. Makot are a part of life and they're going to come to every single person. You and I both know that. But you'd be very, very foolish if you're going to develop your emunah after you get the makkah. It's like a person who can get a vaccine before the sickness or deal with the sickness after. That's not so smart. You're better off doing it before. 
Because afterwards, there may be too many complications. When Hashem says, Am magdim He's giving us a direction, a road for us in our lives. Make sure in life you anticipate the makot of life and make sure you prepare ahead of time that you have the remedy because the remedy after the makah may be too complicated. The time to work on emunah is now. When everything is good. When things are relatively calm. When you're still young. Before the issues. Now is the time to open up havot levavot. And learn shara bitahon. Now is the time for that. So then I'll learn it when I need it. No, no, but when you're going to need it, you're not going to be able to learn it. Makdim is a life directive for every single person. There are many different types of makot in life. One of the biggest makot in life, and don't get offended when I say the word makah, I'm only trying to fit the words. Marriage could be a big makah. Marriage is not so easy. I don't mean makah like it's a terrible thing. God forbid. It's a big blessing. But in many ways, it's challenging. The whole relationship of a man and a woman, it doesn't really go so well. They're very different. They have different ways about them. They think different. They act different. They like different things. They have different temperaments. It it doesn't go. It's not the roommate you would choose if you were in school. But it needs to go. But it's a makah. It's challenging. Anyone who's married knows that. It's not the glamour that it looks like by the wedding. It's not like that. It's great. It it could be great. could be Gan Eden. But... You need to figure out how to bring the refuah to the makah. Now anyone who's getting married, you better be ready for that. Because if you're not ready, you're going to get some shock treatment. And who knows if you'll be able to make it out. Or make it out complete. It's not so simple. Now of course it's never too late. But the earlier the better. So knowing that, you're going to go into this makkah, hopefully. It's a makkah that you want. It's not a makkah that you don't want. You want the makkah. But you better be getting ready for the makkah. You better be makdim refu'ale makkah before you get married. Which is a whole different subject. How a person is magdim preparing your relationships when you're still 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 12 and 18 and 19. preparing your relationships with your sister and your brother and your mother and father and your neighbor and your cousin. If you're not getting along with your brother and sister, that's not a good sign. It's a small makkah compared to the bigger one that's coming. 
you don't get along with your friends, it's a problem. They're a lightweight compared to the heavyweights that are coming up in your life. You need to start preparing, carrying the loads. Don't just dismiss and say, no, these people in my life, they're all rotten. I'm just going to wait for the right person to come along and then it's going to be great. Don't, don't dismiss the issues that you have with relationships to the fact that these people are off. Because if you think these people are off, you just wait to see how off your spouse is going to be. They're going to be way off. These guys are like much closer. Generally, she's just like you. She's much closer to you than he's going to be. And the same way for a man, the same. So when is the refuah for this makkah? When foolish is the person who wastes their precious years of youth in distractions and in relationships that don't mean anything and only foolish is the person who spends their precious years of youth teenage years that are meant to prepare the person for this beautiful part of their life. You know, there's a reason why we're not born married. Good thing, because there wouldn't be any marriages. We're not born married because there needs to be years of preparation. You know, according to Halakha, when a boy is 13, he's supposed to get married. Could you imagine a 13-year-old getting married today? You think that's even like... We can't even... They're 24 and we're still wondering who they are, where are they, finding themselves. But the years used to be 13, now it's maybe 23, I don't know, 24. Maybe 20, depending on the person. But those years are very precious years. They're meant to prepare the person with the smaller relationships like their friends, their family, and prepare them for the big one. But what do most people, unfortunately, in the world do, in the street? They spend those years trying to act like they're married and trying to get into the world of relationships that are not ready, they're not ready for. And all it does is make them more distracted from preparing themselves for what they need to become. The way to prepare for a marriage is that each side is supposed to prepare on their side of the fence. That's what Surah tells us, very clear. That each side stays on their side of the fence and they prepare their lightweight relationships with their friends, their more difficult friends, they're easier friends, the far ones, the close ones, the family. And they work and work and work on the lightweights and they perfect their friendships. And they work on their friendships and then they're able to climb to the other side of the fence. But unfortunately, for many people in the street, it's not like that. They spend their years, these precious years, that creates the refu'ah 
they spend it trying to be ahead of what they're ready for. And they end up wasting special years of preparation. And by the time they get to the marriage, they're not so ready. Because preparation for marriage really has one preparation at the end of the day. It's called midot. But they're not so easy. Don't just say, yeah, midot. oh, I have good midot, I'm good. No, no. You have no idea what midot mean and how long it takes to make a midah beautiful and perfect and really functioning in your day-to-day life. It's years of work. Like the great rabbi once said, to finish shas, that's easy. To change one characteristic, that's not so easy. Going from an angry person to a patient person, that's more than shas. Shas takes seven and a half years to learn it very quickly. To, to change one midah may take longer than that. That's the time of youth. It's supposed to be preparation for the greatness of marriage. But if you don't, makdim lemaka. Now, in the makkah, you're going to start lifting weights. Now the weights are 500 pounds. Now you're going to start learning how to deal with your midot and your character. Very difficult. That's why marriage isn't so easy, especially in today's world. Makdim and that's why under the chupa, I, I think I mentioned this once before, we say two identical brachot. We say, hatan vekala. That's number six. And the seventh beracha, the final one, we say, hatan imakala. Identical. Hashem makes the hatan and kala happy. Why do we repeat the same beracha twice? The answer is, it's not a repetition. The first one is mesamea hatan vekala separately as individuals. If a hatan and kala don't come into the marriage already happy and complete and knowing how to be happy people that know how to get along with others, that's that's the first beracha hatan vekala as individuals. Only then you could hope for hatan imakala together. But you're gonna go. From a, a person who is not prepared and throw them into turmoil, it's not so simple. And I think anybody who's married knows that. Anyone who's around marriage knows that. Makdim refu'ah lemaka'ah. Young lady, young man, are you preparing your refu'ah before the makah comes? Or are you waiting for the tornado to come hit you? It's a question. It's a real question. And as parents, we have to be thinking about that. We have to be thinking about not what they're eating and what they're wearing. Of course, that too, but that's not really what's going to make it. You have to think about the hundred years of their life going forward. Where's that going? Are they ready and getting ready for it? That's a big thing. You know it's coming. Prepare for it. Those are two examples. I could probably sit here and give you hundreds of examples of where this principle applies. Makdim That we need to practice. But for today's class, which is why I brought it up, now that we know that de'aga, 
now that we know that worry, which is a makkah that everybody has to deal with, nobody's above this issue of worry. Again, Shlomo Amir talks about it as if it's a reality. De'aga belev ish. You're going to have de'aga. You're not a bad person. You're not, you're not a, a person who's lost because you have de'aga. Normal. But now that we know the solution is that you need to have a good friend that you could talk to. So you need to prepare a good friend. Having a good friend is not a simple subject. Let me tell you about a friendship that probably most people don't have. It's a friendship of Rabbi Yohanan and Resh Lakish, two great Emoraim from the greatest people in our history. They had different pasts. Rabbi Yohanan was a righteous man his whole life. Resh Lakish was a Baal Teshuvah. But they became Havrutot. And their friendship became so tight and so real and so special. The Gemara says that when Resh Lakish died, when he passed away, Rabbi Yohanan, the great Rabbi Yohanan, was thrown into bitter mourning and passed away soon afterwards because their friendship was so real. It was life-sustaining. It gave them life. So much so that they couldn't continue without it. Friendships are a very important part of our existence in this world. Studies have confirmed the importance of friendships. Strong friendships lead to greater success in battling illness. Friendships promote health, both physically and psychologically. And without friends, the opposite is true. Being lonely can create so many problems in every way. Friendship is a real refuah in life. Not only for de'aga, but for many things. But today's subject is worry. If you're going to have success in this challenge of worry, you're going to have to have a good friend. Our rabbis say the words, O havruta, O metuta. How, how big is a, is a good friendship? Well, you either have it or you have death. You might as well check out. That's how they looked at friendship and its value. As important as a good friend is, it's also unfortunately a rarity in life. If you're lucky, you would have one good friend. In 1985, the average American had three people to whom to confine to confide matters of importance. So he asked people, if you ask me really important, how many people do you trust? Like it's very sensitive information, it's very personal, it 
could hurt you if it's shared, if it's, or they're not going to look at you in the wrong. How many people do you have in your life that you could share very sensitive, important information? 1985, three. A study was done in 2006. That's about 20 years later. And the number dropped to two. That's a big drop. That's one third. Just lost one third of your friendships. Now let's think what happened between 1986, 1985 and 2006. Let's think. In 1986, there were no emails. So people couldn't communicate via email. So that means to communicate with people, you had to send letters. Until they actually got the letters, you had express mail. Until they received it, till they answered you. You had a phone, but not a cell phone. So when you called people, you actually had to leave a message. Like if they're not home, then they don't answer you. So you have to leave a message on the voice recorder. And then when they hear it, they get back to you. The new generation doesn't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but yeah, you have to call someone in their house. Well, how else are you going to reach them? Well, people aren't home all the time. Well, exactly. You have to leave a message. And then when they get the message, if they get the message, if it's not already full, so then you're going to have to wait or maybe call them back. So till you actually met somebody on the phone, it might take you some time. Communication was nowhere near what it is today. If it was uh, on a level of a 1 to 100, a 10, today is a 90. Who knows what's coming? It's way more today. The communication, the ability to communicate. There were no chats in 1986. When you wanted to talk to somebody, you actually called them. There were no texts. You cannot text somebody. You have to actually open your mouth and say something. And you couldn't do it publicly. You had to talk to each one personally. It was very hard to connect to people. Where today, with a press of a button, you've reached thousands of people. One comment. Everyone knows. And that then I couldn't connect. So between 1985 and 2006, communication got so much better. You're able to reach so much more people, much more often. You would say... The number three probably went to 300. And in those years, the number went down to two. How could, how could that be? And I don't know the recent studies. I didn't check the recent studies. But if from 85 to 2006, we went down one, I think from 2006 to today, we're at zero. That's what I think. Because things just got more wild. But we have to explain that. Why is that? I did see a study recently, a recent study, that 79, you know, people think that older people are lonely, which sometimes is true. There's a very big percentage of people who are older who are lonely. But recent studies show that 80% of adults between the age of 18 and 24 feel lonely. Because you mean 18 and 24. That's like the heyday of your life. That's like your social life is between 18 and 24. And in today's world, you're 18 and, and you feel lonely? How could that be? 
Where, where is all the social media? Where, what is that doing for you? How, you're connected to so many people. They're pressing likes all over the place. You're connected. You have followers. You're following. You're doing. You're unbelievable. You're all over. The, you're all over the world. People commenting. You're commenting. You're fully in it. Wow. Eighty percent of those people feel lonely. They don't have one person to turn to. How could that be? How could that be in a world that communication is so much easier? That loneliness became so much more. That doesn't make sense. Who would bet on this? The only one that would bet on it are Hazal and our Torah. That's why you need the wisdom of the Torah. Because sometimes in life, things look a certain way, but you're in darkness. You don't see. You only figure it out later, but it's too late. The wisdom of the Torah gives you a play-by-play ahead of time. You know, what, what is a true friend? What, what does it mean, first of all, when we say have a friend? We have thousands of friends, or hundreds of friends, or tens of friends, or at least five friends. Don't I have a lot of friends? So let me tell you, I know probably everybody here thinks they have a lot of friends. But let me tell you first, when we say a friend, what it means. So here are some of the important things that you need to have in a friendship. Number one is someone who takes your needs seriously. Like if you need something, like it really is important to them. They take your needs seriously. It's not just like, oh, yeah, okay, great, goodbye. No, no. If you need something, they take it seriously. They really want, they need to help you. Someone who mourns in your sorrow. Like when you're down and feel bad, they really feel bad. No, not they tell you they feel bad. They really feel bad. How many people in your life really feel bad if something happens to you that's not so good? And someone who rejoices in your joy. They're so happy for you. You you made a lot of money. They're so happy for you. Now, everybody, when they hear good news, they share words of happiness. But how many are really happy? I'm not sure. Uh, your friend got engaged. You didn't. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Sketch. It's not true. It's not true. Not true. Not true. Let's be honest. You're not really happy for them. I mean, you, you want to be happy for them. You, you wish you could be happy for them. But let's be honest. For many people, that's not such an easy thing to do. Oh, wow, you made a billion dollars yesterday. I'm so happy for you. You're so not happy for them. <laughs> That's, that's not real. And you know and they know it's fake. You both know it's fake. But that's how you live your life, thinking that's the way it's supposed to be. Life is fake. We dress fake, we talk fake, we act fake. That's just how life is. It's a fake world. So we just get used to it and think this is the reality. But do you have a friend that when something good happens to you, even if it didn't happen to them, that they would so rejoice in your joy because you're so happy? Not so sure. I think most of your friends are already out. The goal of today is to make sure you have no friends left. That's, that's today's goal. You came in with a few. 
First you start with a thousand, I cut you down to ten. Soon you'll be in the negative. A real friend has a good eye. A good eye means they see the good in you. They don't look at you in the negative. They don't judge you for something bad that you did or the, 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 the dark side of your life. They see the goodness in you. Everybody's got their challenges, but they see the good. They look at you and they, they love so much about you. They have a good eye. Their eye turns to the good. A friend, someone faithful, trustworthy. You could trust them with all your secrets. How many people could you trust with your secrets? Like the ones that could damage you and your future forever. How many could you tell? How many, how many people could you tell? Not sure. I hope you can tell like your husband, maybe, or your wife. How many people could you share sensitive information that are so loyal to you and trustworthy? They would never, even in a, in a doubt, do something that might hurt you. Someone who feels your pain, share the burden with. How many people feel our pain, pain, identify with our pain? Those are some of the simple attributes of a good friend. And I think when we put that on paper, we realize we don't really have that many people that really have such an attitude towards us. And by the way, it's not a new phenomenon. It's not a new thing. If you open up the book of Eov, you will see something very interesting. Eov was one of the great successful people in history. The Pasuk says in the beginning of the book of Eov that this man was so successful, both in his spiritual accomplishments and his physical accomplishments. He had 10 children, seven boys, three girls. He had thousands of real estate, cattle. He was, a, it says, Vahiyah Gadol Mikol Benekedem. He was a Gadol. He was like the person. He was a great man. From all of that area, Iov was the man. Not only that, his kindness. In fact, the Pasuk says in Iov that his tent was open like Avraham Avinu. So much so that he even asked Hashem, why did you choose him, not me? I'm no different than him. He, he helped so many people. He was a Baal Hesed. And then all of a sudden, the book of Iov, things turn upside down. The man loses his entire family. All his children die. All his money is gone. He becomes super ill. He doesn't have any more strength. He's sitting Shiva, not only for his children, but he's sitting, and who knows how long, for everything that he lost. He left with nothing, zero. And the whole book of Yov describes the people that came to visit him and the conversations they had with him. How many people came to visit him during this time of difficulty? Well, if you look in the book of Eov, you'll find three. Three people. I'll give you their names. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sofar. Three people. Later on, another one came. His name is Elihu. 
Could you imagine? From the greatest people in the world of the time, he lost everything, everything. We never saw someone lose everything like that. And three people come to visit him and talk to him? Three? Now you might say, oh, maybe there wasn't that many people. Maybe he was living by himself somewhere. No one knew about him. Well, look ironic. At the end of the story of Iyob, the Pasuk says that Iyob became again blessed. Everything turned back. But even more than before. He had 14 children. Uh, excuse me. He had, sorry, he had Shiv'ana Banim Veshalosh Banot. He had 14 sons now. Three girls. He had Instead of 7,000 cattle, 14,000 cattle. You've got it. He turned around. And look at the Pasuk. Oh, wow. He had brothers. All his brothers came. And all his sisters came. And all those who knew him before. And they said, can't believe what happened to you. I feel so bad. And they consoled him. Wait a second. They came now? Where were his brothers and sisters and all his friends from before when he was on the floor suffering? Nobody. Because they weren't real friends. It's not a new thing that friends are hard to come by it's a reality of this world and surprisingly our world is no different we must use the words of Hazal to resolve this problem because without a good friend in life it's very hard to live life. You need a friend. But you need to prepare the refuah before the makkah. You, you can't pick up the friend that you need when you need them. It's too late. You gotta do it beforehand. So what are, what's the advice of hachamim, of the Torah about choosing a friend? How do you have a friend? So we know the famous Mishnah Perkei Avot. Mishnah says, Acquire for yourself a friend. Now anyone read that Mishnah says, Oh, come on. That's what they came to teach me? Anybody, any three-year-old could write that. That in order to live life successfully, you got to have a friend. Every three-year-old out there is looking to make friendships. They already know this. You need the Mishnah to tell you, but like the words of Hazal in so many places, they look simple, but they're not simple. They're very deep. They're very instructive. You just got to pay attention and listen good to what they're telling you. is not simple. There's a lot about this subject. Perhaps the biggest hidush of this statement is that friendships in your life should not be accidental. They should not be 
friendships that developed because of happenstance, because of chance. Think about all the friends that people have. Why are you their friend? Well, I live next door to them. I went to school with them. We were in the same class together. We went to the same shul together. We Most friendships you ever heard about were random. I'm not saying you shouldn't be friendly with people. You could have a thousand acquaintances. But real friends, Hazal tell you, listen, this friend that you need in life, it's your choice. It has to be done from your end. It's not something you fall into. People look at friendships as, well, I either got a friend or I didn't get a friend. They like me or they didn't like me. They included me, they didn't include me. No, no, no. That may be for acquaintances. But for the friend that you need in life, the refu'ah friend, it has to start with you. What does it mean starting with you? If you lived according to Perke Avot, what you would do is, you would go into a room of people that you're familiar with. You have to go to other cities. Stay within your social environment. You look around the room and say, hmm, who in this room would be a really good friend to me? Like who has the qualities that could even be a good friend? Look around, this one, this one. Oh, there, that one right there, yeah. What quality? But she doesn't know me. But we have nothing to do with each other. Okay, now you located. Wukne, what's wukne means? Go acquire. How do you acquire something when you go into a store? You don't just you just put things in your in your cart. No, you first go. You locate what you want, and then you acquire it. You first have to make the decision. It's a conscious decision. A good friend is a conscious decision that you go and you look for someone that is worthy of being your friend. But let's say they don't want to be friendly with you. <laughs> Chances are, if they're such good people, they're not really waiting for the lottery that you chose them. So that's why it says, Kne means you have to acquire. Imagine you go to the register after you bought something and say, well, it's, it, I want this. Okay, but you can't have it. But I want it. You can't have it. You need to pay. Ukne doesn't mean pay. Ukne means acquire. By food, you need money. By a friend, a good friend also needs a type of acquisition. How do you acquire a friend? You have to buy them jewelry. That's not how you acquire a friend. You don't bribe them. You acquire a friend, number one, by being a friend. That person moves on to your block. You say, oh, that's the person I want to get close to. He's such a, such a good person. I really want to be close to them. First Shabbat, you make sure you write him a nice card, nice flowers, welcome to the neighborhood. So happy that you're here. Oh, wow. So nice. They call you back. There's a conversation.
conversation. If you need anything, please call me. You come visit the next week. Can I help you with something? Friendship in the world today is not really your fault. It's if you're lucky, you have a good friend. If you're not lucky, you don't have a good one. It's all in your luck. You know. You have to invest in the right person and you acquire them by being a good friend, by caring, by being committed to them, by sacrifice. That's how you become friendly with people. You have to do what it takes to be a friend so that that person can be your friend. It's an acquisition. You don't have to lose all your friends, but probably they're not real friends. But you gotta choose one that's going to be your remedy for life. That's what Knelecha Haver means. You choose one. The word Hibur, Haver means, Hibur, Hibur means connect. You know, you take two things that have surfaces on them that are bulging out, they can't connect. When they're smooth, they can hit each other beautifully. You can acquire a friend if you have a lot of ego. People of ego don't have friends. They have people that might be scared of them. They have people that maybe kiss up to them. That's why you'll find a lot of lonely, wealthy people. A lot. Much more than you can imagine. You think a guy has got everything, he's in the whole world, and you got nobody. There's not one person that they could trust. Because they know that probably the person doesn't really care about them. They're just trying to get close to them because maybe they'll be in a deal with them or maybe they'll invite them to somewhere. <laughs> no friends. No friends. Not one person they could talk to and actually trust. And their ego doesn't allow them to have a good friend. Because ego and friendship doesn't go. There's no hibur. There's no glue. It's the anti-glue. So you need to humble yourself. You need to be the person that's reaching out and making the connection. <laughs> Sensitivity to other people's needs. Listening to their opinions. Validating the person. It's an investment. <laughs> Good friendship is on you, not on anybody else. You figure out who it is, and you do your best. Notice, by the way, by the way, the Rambam says, before I get to the Rambam, also means that the person that you choose should be higher than you. Most people like friends who are lower than them, for a simple reason. They wait for them to come to me, because... If I'm higher than you and you're lower than me, then you're always going to follow what I want. It's where I want to go. It's what I want to do. So I'd much rather have friends that are lower than me that look up to me. Besides telling you to acquire the friend, it's also telling you to look up. You, have to, you don't have to acquire someone lower than you. They're waiting for you. They want you. I don't know. Get someone higher than you. That person, you need to go up to get them. Because the higher your friend, the higher the refu'ah that you are securing for yourself. You know, the Rambam, I was telling you, the Rambam writes that there are three types of friends. 
One friendship he calls Ahavat To'elet. It's a love that they share because they benefit each other. They, you know, you like a business partner. You work, I work, you help me make money, I help you make money. It's a Ahavat To'elet. That kind of friendship is a nice friendship, but it's not a real friendship because it's dependent on the benefits between you. The second level of friendship he calls Ahavat HaMenuha. It's the love of, of Menuha, of relaxation, of tranquility. What does that mean? It means someone that you feel comfortable around, someone that you trust. That's a higher level. It's not just that you benefit me, I benefit you. It's someone that you're comfortable around. That's beautiful. And then says the Rambam, the highest level of friendship, he calls it Ahavat Hama'ala. Hama'ala. Or Ahavat Atov. Which means you love a person for their greatness and their quality is so special. You love them. It's not what they do for you, it's not what you get out of them. They're just so special. Ahavatama'ala. That's a real ahava. Meaning, it's ahava that could last. That's what it means. Look for the haver, that guy who's above you and invest in making that friendship yours. I will end off by explaining so what's going on in our world? Why are there less friends today? So actually, social media is hurting our friendships. Notice the words of the Mishnah, Ukne haber. Notice it doesn't say in plural. It says it singular. It has two different reasons why. Reason number one is you can't make friends wholesale. You can't make friends with four people. It's not, it doesn't work like that. Ukne haber. To acquire a friend, you need to be focused one at a time. Because when you're focused on more than one, then you have nothing. You see, in today's world, people are focused on everybody. But when you focus on everybody, then you focus on nobody. So, a hundred years ago, your grandmother and my grandmother and my grandfather they had people in their neighborhood and they focused on the people that they saw. They spoke to them when they saw them, they had a relationship with them. They had a real friend. They didn't have a thousand options, but they were focused on the friendships that they had and they were real friendships. But in today's world, friendship is being split into so many parts. So what that does is, it doesn't allow for any friendship to exist. The soil of real friendship has been pulled out. Yeah, and that's why 18 to 24 year olds don't have friends. Because they haven't invested 
in any one friend. They're all, they're in group. They have group friends. They're all around. We, this, that's not going to make it. One haver at a time. You could have more than one, but you need to invest in one at a time. That's a real friendship. Wholesale friendships create no friendships. So actually, today's world, as, as much as we're being spread, it's actually making friendship impossible. That's why we have a lot of lonely people. And means also, you only need one. You don't need 100 friends. You can be friendly with everybody. You can have many acquaintances. No, for sure. Everyone should be thrilled with you. You should be good with everyone. But how many havers do you need? One. That's a big hidush, by the way. Because if you took the subject of friendship and put it in front of people and say, tell me, what's called a success in this area of life? They would say, well, if you have like a hundred friends, that's like, if you have like five friends, you're not like a hazi case. If you have 10, you're a little better. If you have 100, you're doing good. If you have 1,000, you're doing awesome. If you have a million, you're like, forget about it. Friendship, from the time that we're little, is translated in our mind. Success is in the quantity. And that's the way we live our life. And people get all depressed. But I only have four friends. They have 10 friends. They have 30 friends. Quantity isn't what makes the refuah of a friendship. haver means you only need one. You don't need... Stop thinking that your success in the world of friendship or social... Social success. Don't think it has to do with numbers. It doesn't matter how many people you're connected to. Does it make a difference? Success in this area, the refu'ah is one friend. Don't distract yourself. Invest. One is enough. You don't need haverim. You need a haver. And I end off with a beautiful story. A story that explains the pasuk that we all are so familiar with. It's a story of two men, two very big businessmen, very wealthy men. One lived in Egypt, Alexandria, and one lived in Baghdad, in Iraq. And during their years of business, they would constantly be visiting each other. They did business together. One would go to there, and they were such kind, beautiful people and such close friends, they loved each other. And there came a time in their lives where the one in Egypt was struggling financially and he lost it all. He lost all his money. He tried and he tried and he tried. Nothing went. His wife told him, you know, you have a good friend. We have nothing to eat. You have a good friend in Baghdad. Go talk, he'll help you. No, no, I can't. I'm embarrassed. How can He's your friend, and after a while, he had no choice. So he went to Baghdad, he had to walk. He walked for days. He's exhausted, he finally gets there. It's almost sunset. He said, I can't go to my friend like this, I'm exhausted, I'm tired. I need to 
wash up. Just let me just sleep tonight, and then tomorrow I'll go see him. He goes to sleep on the grass in the park. In the middle of the night, while he's sleeping, he hears people fighting, screaming, and he hears a guy pulling out something like a sword. And all of a sudden, as they're fighting, boom, he sticks the sword into the guy and he kills him. And the guy falls on the floor, somewhere next to him, he's nowhere, it's dark. And he's so tired, he just falls asleep. In the morning, when light comes, the police is the first person that he saw, and they look at him, the guy dead next to him, He's sleeping, looks like he's from who knows where. They take him to the police station. They accuse him of killing the guy. I said, I didn't kill him. He said, come on. You didn't kill him? Look, how could this happen? In the end, he had no choice. He just admitted he's so tired and he just burnt out. And they took him to get killed in the middle of the city. That's the way they did it, so people could see. Everybody starts gathering around. Everybody has to come. Everyone's invited. You have to come. And they have him ready, the gallows ready to pull the string to hang him. And then all of a sudden, his friend, he looks and he sees. He can't believe his eyes. That's his friend. He's guilty. He's, he killed somebody. Like crazy. So he starts screaming, don't touch him. It wasn't him. It was me. Guy's ready to pull the string. He hears this guy scream. What is he saying? It's me. You got the wrong guy. He didn't do it. I did it. You got to kill me. Come. He said, What's going on here? All of a sudden, this guy realizes his friend is trying to take it for him. He said, Don't listen to him. It was me. I killed. Kill me. Don't touch him. Hazid, this guy has nothing to do. Never saw two volunteers to get killed. <laughs> There's no he I kill him, kill both of them. He doesn't know what to do. So he says, you know, guys, I, 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 not, I can't do this. He says, we're going to go. We take you to the king. And the king is going to decide what to do with you guys. And this is uh, I oh, it's above my pay grade. They take him to the king. And the king is given a little bit of a story. Uh, you know, he gives him a preview of the story. So he doesn't understand what's going on. The guys come in, he wants to see who these crazy guys are. He says, listen guys, he says, I don't know who you are, I don't know, this story is a little bit of a crazy story, but I need to hear, I need to hear what's going on. So they explain him the whole story, how much they love you, they have avatar ma'ala, they love, they loved each other. He says, I know my friend, he would never do it like this. He says, he's a special person, what a family, I'd rather die instead of him, he's so good. The world needs him more than me. The guy, no, no, he needs, the world needs him more than me. They're going crazy about how great each other are. The king says, listen, guys, I'll make you a deal. He says, I'm willing to save both of your lives, but on one condition. He says, the condition is that you include me in your friendship. He says, I have a lot of people who clap, who stand up for me, who wave to me, who kiss everything. He says, he says, friends like this, I don't have. That's what the Pasuk says. Ve'ahavta le'reacha kamocha 
Love your friend. Ani Hashem. Ani Hashem. Ani Hashem, you could say it in every Pasuk in the Torah. Keep Shabbat, Ani Hashem. Eat kosher, Ani Hashem. What, what does that have to do with this? No. When there is a friendship, that kind of friendship, Hashem says, I want to be in that friendship. I want to be part of this friendship. Tremendous siyata a person gets in such a friendship. Makdim De'aga, you have a good friend, you're doing great. But you need the good friend before. Because if you have de'aga already, nobody wants to be your friend. Nobody wants to hear your problems. But you have to have the refu'ah before the makkah, the siyata deshmaya, we'll all see hatzlaha in this very important area in life. Have a good day. Thank you.